0: We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not-too-bad podcasts can be found. Welcome to episode 120. Uh, this is a podcast about comics and I'll be talking about comics a little bit, well one comic uh, a little bit in a second. And uh, sometimes it, there are a couple of us in a studio here in Southampton, uh, often it's me, Nick, here in my study, that buzz in the background is my computer, um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, contributors, excellent contributors. And I've got an excellent contribution for you this week as well, uh, from Maxi Barnard about manga. Um, housekeeping, housekeeping, housekeeping. Okay. So this podcast is Patreon supported. Uh, you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash T O T P and, uh, and, Contributing a little bit of uh, money each month. You don't have to. The podcast is always going to be free. Uh, but uh, that does help pay for uh, domain hosting and uh, sometimes for little bits of equipment we might need here or there. Equipment sounds like a euphemism. I mean, I mean, recording equipment. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, my junk. I am sat here in my boxes, though. It's really warm in here, which I think is why my computer is making that buzz. I'm really very sorry about both that and, uh, and my boxes. And, um, if I sound like, um, if I sound like I'm a bit bloated, I apologize for that too. I am a bit bloated. Um, I thought, uh, uh, carbonated water drink would be, uh, water based drink would be, um, a good idea before recording. It's turning out not so much. I feel very gassy. Uh, so if that comes across, I'm, I'm very sorry about that too. So uh the Patreon you need to know about that. Uh Twitter, I'm on Twitter at nicksite n i x s i g h t. The podcast is also on Twitter at uh, issuespod i s s u e s p o d. And uh I don't tend to pay that much attention if I can help it to comic culture at the moment and I'm really bad at keeping track of new releases and whatever, but if I do hear about anything like that on Twitter I'll tend to share it on um on issues pod on the Twitter issues pod uh, the on the account at issues pod on Twitter. Also, there's a Facebook page uh, called We Have Issues. I'm trying to move away from that towards a group uh, called The Other Ten Percent. Uh, I'll put uh, links to all of these in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at wehaveissues.net. Uh, I normally put quite extensive show notes up. If there's a lot to talk about, but there isn't a lot to talk about this week, so there won't be very much at all there except those links. Uh, the Facebook group should allow for people to post their own, uh, uh, stories and stuff that they've found as well, um, in a way that the page doesn't. I haven't been, I haven't been paying attention to Twitter much over the last few days. we had a busy weekend, which is why this episode is coming up on the Sunday night. When it, it should really be coming up before the weekend, um, or going up, or going out, or being uploaded, or whatever the terminology is. We went to see Regina Spectre, it was very exciting. I thank you very much for asking. It was a belated birthday gift, um, and I, and I loved it. And she was lovely. Half an hour late, didn't apologize for that, but, but you know, they played longer at the end, so I guess it's okay. Um, also they made us, they made us work a bit too hard for the encore. It was weird. I mean, I don't know. I don't go to a lot of concerts anymore. Uh, but it seemed like it was about three, two or three minutes of stamping and clapping. That's, that's too much. But maybe they wanted to grab a drink or something. It's fine. Um, they, I don't mean they. I'm not referring to Roger Anna Spectre as they. Um, she did have uh, musicians with her. Uh, she's a she. I try to get that stuff right uh, when I can. So, so what has been happening on Twitter this week? I don't know, to be honest. I have noticed friends of mine talking about uh, the idea that people uh, aren't morally tied to the entertainment they consume. So someone liking something that you don't like doesn't make them a morally bad person. And that is probably, I mean, it's it's 2017. There are lots of things that we shouldn't be having to talk about by 2017. But at the same time, uh, most of the English speaking world seems to be devolving back to some point in the 70s and not in a good way. So, um yeah, I think it's always good to uh to r- remind people that while works of entertainment can be morally reprehensible, um and creators of entertainment can be morally reprehensible, someone isn't a bad person just because they like a particular thing unless they always seem to like the same particular sort of thing and that sort of thing is always like racist or awful or or or, or, or whatever um in which case you could at least start asking some probing questions of them i think i think that'd be reasonable uh, but still and i i try and separate out the uh, entertainment i consume from the people who make it as much as possible and the internet makes that really hard uh because at, at a core level i uh, don't believe that a, a writer or an artist or Or a musician or whatever being a complete scumbag changes necessarily the merit of their work if if they've written an amazing song or um or an amazing book or something like that um them turning out to be a monster later on doesn't actually tangibly change that piece of work, even though it changes the context in in a uh, the context in which it was created, which uh may you know there are always going to be certain things in uh, in um, in uh, stories that are open to interpretation, and you might find that something that you were like, oh, I'm not sure what they were getting at there, but I think they were satirizing uh, monstrous misogyny, and then it turns out the person writing it was a monstrous misogynist, and you're like, well, okay, now I have to rethink that. I mean, that's obviously going to happen, and I've I've talked. Um, I've talked on the podcast before about my personal feeling about this, which is I find it very difficult. Uh, when, uh, if I'm reading, if I'm reading something that's just uh, daft and throwaway, it doesn't really matter to me. Like, it's like soap operas. You don't, you don't necessarily know because you're, you're watching a program, um, or you're reading a comic uh, that comes out all the time and it's clearly just soap opera with those characters and, and maybe there was a creator of the show who had some control of it at some point in the past. But you don't know who's writing individual episodes or anything like that. Um, so it's difficult to imagine that on something that's, uh, d- that doesn't have an, a lot of emotional content to it, um, or sophisticated content to it, uh, that any one writer's perspective is going to, um, really d- d- have much of an, much of an impact on the actual work itself and of course you can you can boycott stuff if you want, that's fine you don't need my permission to obviously but what I mean is I'm not judging people for saying well I can't support uh, I can't even uh, uh, vaguely support an organisation that employs this person or this person, this person, I totally understand that um, I have trouble remembering uh, the 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 rules or stuff like that personally and remembering who works where and and things so um so it makes it quite difficult for me to keep track and also i always used to be pretty amoral and i think a lot of that sort of still hangs on a bit um but my point is with stuff that with stuff that isn't going to make me feel very much anyway or isn't going to get into remotely tricky territory um it doesn't I don't I tend to think that the it doesn't matter to me really who's writing it. Uh but one thing I've talked about a lot in the past is that when um a piece of work goes into Tricky Territory when it's got lots of say lots of uh stuff in there about, about uh gender or or social injustice or um or race, and you're reading it, um, in a, in a way that, like, it's clearly supposed to make you think, or at least it's dabbling in areas that are, that do carry in an awful lot of, uh, emotional gravity or ideological gravity to them. I tend to need to trust the judgment of the people writing. So I don't even necessarily need, uh, them to be a good person. But I need to know that they aren't idiots. That they aren't, um, that I'm not trusting this person to be considering all the angles and then writing down, uh, writing down their interpretation of an issue or, um, or even not their interpretation of an issue, but ca- characters and stories that um, exist in that sort of space. Um, and that they don't have any, uh, idea of the weight or gravity of the stuff they're writing. Because I need my storytellers to be smarter than me, or at least to feel like they're smarter than me. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily something that's a particularly useful metric for other people to use. But, but for me, it's quite important. I need to, um, read that sort of content with a certain amount of, uh, not insulation from it. But I need to not be overthinking it myself, and that means I have to be able to trust the the storyteller to do the thinking for me to a certain extent um, or at least some of the heavy lifting to get all of the parts of the story in place so that I can then decide how I feel about it. And if I don't trust them to understand what they're doing, then um, you know if it's possible they're actually incompetent in the uh, in the areas that they're working in and and using the tools that they they're using i'm going to really struggle with it it's it's why um it's why i have a lot of trouble with uh, a lot of marvel comics at the moment because i don't a uh, basic principle i don't have uh, I, I don't think that there are certain areas of um our lives or the world around us that should be off limits to storytelling but when um a a new sort of controversial story uh happens and is and is previewed or whatever at say i'm using marvel comics as a specific example because they seem to handle it so badly and then the way they react isn't to say no comment or to say yes we understand um we understand the gravity of what we're doing here and, um you know, when instead of doing that, they react by acting like there shouldn't be a controversy in the first place and the people who are talking about a potential controversy are somehow idiots who don't understand what's going on. I have a problem with that and the main reason I have a problem with that, aside from the fact that it's a bit arsehole is that if... If they don't know that making Captain America a Nazi is, um, or whatever iteration of that particular story you, you, you know, or interpretation of that particular story you want to put on it. If the people making that comic and putting it out don't know the weight of the concepts that they're dealing with, then I don't think they're going to do a good job of telling that story. Certainly not a good enough job for me, anyway. Um, I need them to be smarter than I am. And I look at that and I think, well, that's heady territory. I hope they know what they're doing. Um, the fact that uh, what the, what they tend to do is uh, editors and writers uh, go onto Twitter and start talking about how it shouldn't be an issue in the first place. Um, and uh, And, you know, then other writers whose work I'm in a a similar spot with all the time, come in and chime in and they say, well, I don't see what the problem is either. And I'm thinking, you're a writer. How can you not see that words matter and concepts matter? That's fucked up. I can't read your comics anymore because you clearly don't know what the fuck you're doing. Or you're disingenuous enough about it to the point where uh, you are stupid enough to think that all of the people reading are stupid enough to not realise that that's what's going on. It's, it's a weird line. Um, it, it's a weird line I walk, I think, because it means that uh, more often than not, I'm not offended by people being disgusting as so much as so I am about how, um, the, the ways in which they try and get away with it or don't even realize it's a problem. That is where my trust really breaks down. I, I, you could argue that my trust should break down at the point that they're being disgusting and that would be a valid argument. But for me, no, it's normally like, not how much of an asshole are you but like how much of an idiot about the asshole you are uh, that's the problem i guess i guess maybe because i was brought up with a tradition of these uh, nihilistic um vile uh you know just the idea that writers and artists are quite often hedonistic and a bit grotesque and it's a stupid it's a stupid stereotype. It's a really stupid culture. But, you know, I spent something like 37 years with that culture and not really seeing it questioned that much. So um I'm afraid you're going to have to bear with me. What was my point? Oh, yeah. My point was that the Titan Comics have a new Robotech comic out. Now, I'm not really big robotech guy i don't really know all of that stuff it's not the cultural touchstone it is for me that it is for other people i really like giant robots um i just never really saw the comics or the cartoons or anything when i was younger and titan comics uh bringing this book out and it's uh, uh there was a review copy available to me But it's written by Brian Wood, and I have a really weird relationship with Brian Wood's work these days. There have been allegations and apologies from him about um, uh, awful behaviour in the past. And I won't lie, I've read comics of his since then. I can't sit on a high horse about it. But... um, And I think, to me, the fact that he showed quite a lot of remorse at the time did count for something. But I've seen him chiming in on other stories recently that suggest to me that he's still carrying around an awful lot of nonsense in his head. And um, and it makes it difficult. So I was looking at this Robotech comic and I was thinking, well, it's giant robots and Brian Wood is a pretty great writer. But do I care enough about giant robots to step into that sort of uh, uh, sticky territory. the there's Is there is there too much baggage there for me to read a comic about something that I'm not always that interested in anyway? And then it turned out that Boom Studios um, also had a number one out this week called Mech Cadet U, which, you know, I don't know Robotech. This seems like an off-brand version of Robotech to me. Uh, based on the very little I know about it, but it's written by Greg Pak, who I have read comics by in the past from Marvel. Um, and I've not been amazed by any of it, but, uh, you know, it's never rung any alarm bells for me. I have quite liked it. Uh, but with art by Takeshi Miyazawa, whose art I just love. It's like this really, well, it's basically this, uh, this manga style art, but with really scratchy lines, and he, he's, I guess he's American. Certainly, I've only ever known, um, his comics be American. Um, he's best known for doing Ms. Marvel. Uh, I'm saying that, you know, I'm just assuming Takeshi is a male name. I don't know, to be honest, and I really should. Um, but, um, I, I think their most famous for, uh, the, the, their recent work on Ms. Marvel, but they did an earlier on on Runaways. They also did, um, a series called Sidekicks years ago, which I think they wrote Andrew, and it was gorgeous. Um, and, uh, so this comic is drawn by them. And I wasn't sure about the color on the cover, just mainly because I like, uh, I was art when it isn't colored, because I really like the scratchiness and the sort of nerviness of the lines. But, um, I have to say, this is, uh, this is colored by Triona Farrell, who chooses really bold blocks of color, um, which really straighten out and clear up the lines of, uh, Miyazawa's normal artwork. And at first I was looking at it and thinking, I feel like something's been lost here. It seems to flatten the art quite a lot. But actually, no, it's really, really nice. It's a really nice uh, color job. It doesn't really come into its own until you start seeing vehicles and robots and, and stuff like that. But, um, it, it, it turns out that Miyazawa's art really does, uh, look great when it's cleaned up in this way. I'm assuming the the cleanup job is, is happening with the really bold color art, but it, it, it might, it might just be something that, that's, um, it might just be an evolution of, of the artist's work in the first place. Anyway, Mech Cadet U is set 60 years after the first robo mech from outer space, um, descended Onto a, a mountain range in Arizona. I'm literally reading from the first page when I say this. Um, yeah, these these are robots that come down. They're giant robots that come down from outer space. They bond to a human. Um, in a uh, this case, uh, this robot befriended a Boy Scout named Skip Tanaka, who at this point in time, 60 years later, is is apparently out in space. Um, and once these robots turned up. And started bonding with people. They started becoming really useful because they'd help with, uh, sort of international rescue style stuff, but also their, their alien invasions and giant monsters and stuff like that. We learn about all of this in the first few pages, um, in a bit of exposition from a, I guess he's a general who, um, is, you know, a top bod at a school in uh, Los Robos, Arizona, uh, called the Sky Corps Academy. And very quickly, we are introduced to the fact that he's speaking to a, a bunch of cadets who are all sort of pretty high class individuals. Um, some of whom might soon be bonded with, uh, with robots because it's, uh, it's coming around to the time, the time, um, of, uh, year that, uh, no, not year, four years. Every four years, some more of these robots come down and bond with some more of these cadets and then start helping out, and it's awesome. Um, and the world's just kind of used to it because it's been going on for 60 years. But we're introduced to this uh really sharp contrast between the cadets, uh, who are all sat in this lecture theatre listening to this speech and watching this presentation, and this young boy called Stanford Yu, who is a Cantonese-American and is only there helping his mum who is a cleaner he's he's helping uh, helping out his uh, janitor mum um and one of the students one of the cadets who'll become important later on it seems uh cadet park she's really really obnoxious to him that in a way that suggests that you know these cadets are going to be these uh, bright young uh, robot warriors, but they—it doesn't stop them from being arseholes and it doesn't stop them from looking down on the cleaning stuff, Basically, um, it's as I'm describing it. It's probably pretty clear what's going to happen. Actually, um, this this first issue takes place uh, on the same day that uh, the the next uh, bunch of robots are going to come to Earth and. And, and join up with cadets we're introduced to this young uh, lad stanford you who is uh obsessed with these robots and believes he's meant for better things than being a janitor's son um but who is looked down on by one of the cadets who is hopefully going to be bonded with one of these robots it it and the comic's called uh the comic's called cadet you so yeah, there's a lot of clues there as to what's going to happen, and this comic is tropey as fuck, really. Um I mean the fact that they're RoboMechs doesn't stop it being a thinly veiled uh reference to this whole genre. And um I th- I'm not sure about my cultural references here, but it seems to me like Stanford is uh his design he's got this giant red cap with white highlights in that looks just like Ash from Pokemon's. Um he's He's a, he's a pretty archetypal young hero for these sorts of things. But with this added, and actually, Pac does a really good job of, um, of making it quite subtle, but with this added sort of class, uh, uh, class critique going on here as well, which is, which is really nice. The script is really light. Um, there are moments of people being assholes, but it's all played uh, relatively straight, and uh, Stanford's really, uh, really likable, straight out the bat, um, and he's a like pretty cool protagonist already. And um, as much as I said it's tropy as fuck, it's just a really nicely executed comic. It looks beautiful, uh, packed script, does everything it needs to, but sort of stays out of the way. The mechs when they turn up look just like miyazawa drawings but um but as i said the color really picks out picks out the design and makes them really crisp and clear they've got these really weird features that makes them incredibly likable as well but it might just be that i've watched iron giant a lot recently i don't know and um it's a it's a pretty great comic i really really enjoyed it the thing about it being tropey it doesn't seem like that big a deal because it seems to me that um there's a whole raft of these genres like the giant robot genre and the um you know the uh giant monsters genre uh that the whole point of them really is to be iterative anyway so it isn't really about uh how amazingly different each story is it's about what you do within um within the trappings um and the archetypes and the and the formulaic narratives of the genre and it just works really well. I mean that's probably a really obnoxiously um reductive thing to say, but you know, I'm not an expert on manga. Um but yeah, it it was pretty pretty nice. I don't know what the Robotech comic's like, to be honest. Uh but uh Met Cadet U was very nice. The um, thing is, I I think Boom might have something bad about them, now that I think about it. But um, I can't remember exactly what it is, so I'm going to try not to think about it. Anyway, I'm not great on my manga history, but Max Barnard is and he's been doing uh his history of manga contributions for us for a really really long time uh but he's um starting up a little mini series within a series uh starting this episode and it's really exciting and um it's a really really good first episode as well so i'm going to pass him over to you pass you over to him not sure which way around it works really Uh, i'm going to curate this experience that you two are going to share with each other um and I'll, I'll be back afterwards. Over to Max.
1: Hey, it's Maxie B with another sample of Japan's intimidatingly broad comics history. This is actually the first in a series within the series, because we're going to be talking about THE manga creator, the artist whose style and vast body of work lifted comics in Japan from a relatively successful artistic medium into one of their biggest industries, and indeed helped bring Japan's comics industry up to being the largest in the entire world. A creator who, whilst inspired by the best of Western animators of his time, became a being entirely unto himself. Transcending those inspirations for a multi-tiered career with all the dips and peaks you'd expect from someone who published roughly 700 individual series in his lifetime. And that's hard to approach. The uh, the creator is Osamu Tezuka, by the way. You may have heard of him. He's the uh, quote-unquote godfather of manga. And I have no idea how I'm going to talk about him and his work, so we're just going to start with the man himself and go from there, nodding to much more detailed resources at the end of each of these segments. Asamu Tezuka was born in Osaka in 1928, and was considered to be creating comics from as early as nine, using the influences from his parents as inspiration that he'd carried with him his entire life. His mother would take him to the Takarazuka, that's really hard to say, I'm going to pronounce things wrong by the way, the Takarazuka Theatre, where he'd see troops of women performing musical theatre dressed fantastically all the while. And his father would expose him to the animated films of Walt Disney, arguably the most formative influence on Tezuka, especially considering claims to the effect of him watching Bambi over 80 times. I don't think I've watched a film more than like 10 times. Jesus. And God, you can see Disney throughout so much of his career, even in his later Gekuga works. What is Gekuga? Whoops, guess I'll explain that later because I can't remember if I told you. It's really quite fascinating and it clearly had an effect on some of his uh, impulses, as I'll tell you about in a later episode. Another key influence on young Tezuka was one of the earliest Japanese animations, Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors, which... Okay, so earlier in this series I talked about the kind of nationalism that's inherent in a lot of Japanese history, and as such, it's creative media. Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors is a propaganda film of sorts, with the cartoon characters fighting US soldiers from a Pacific island, and, I mean, that's the kind of thing you get in war, right? But I'm very uneasy exploring it. Just know that it showed Tezuka what Japanese animation could do, and helped set him on his way. Nationalism couldn't wait for another biography in a few months' time. Tezuka actually got started properly as a 17-year-old doing Yonkoma strips for an Asakon paper. Remember we talked about those last time? Four panels. Easy setup. And I've seen a few of them, they're these doofy little fun jokes, and that's nice enough. But his first big step into comics, the first real work that people hold up and go THIS, this is Tezka is 1947's Shin Takarajima or New Treasure Island. Five gets you ten, what famous novel that was based on. This will be one of our key spotlights in the coming weeks, but in short, it actually had very little to do with the original book, outside of there being pirates and a boy as the main character. Uh, I think there was a... was there a dog in... In the original Treasure Island? I've not read it. I've seen the Muppet version. Anyway, regardless, it had very little to do with the original book, and pioneered these very specific moment-to-moment widescreen storytelling methods that Tezuka would become known for over a lot of his career. It also sold 400,000 copies, which, you know, that's not nothing. This book skyrocketed him to popularity, and was followed over the next few years by a few interesting books, such as Lost World, which continued to pinch titles from related works, uh, established some of what would be known as Tezuka's cast of characters. You see, a lot of his characters are their actors in something he calls the Star System. It's like, I, I guess think of it as like a troupe. So they will they will be in the series. They will usually have the same name, but the the key thing is is they're the same designs, which is either a neat creative tool or a hilarious cheat to get around designing too many new characters. And I'd hate to say which. I like it regardless, and it leads to some really cool stuff after Tezuka pass, uh, passes, which we'll talk about later. And uh, after that, he started to toy with science fiction, as with Metropolis, another book we'll kind of come back to after a fashion. That's something that, along with Tezuka's medical knowledge, would pay dividends across his entire career. We also had Faust, where Mephisto is a poodle sometimes, which is, I mean, that's likely original work, right? But the next big one people would be aware of is Jungle Emperor. Known over here as Kimber the White Lion. Do you know why we know Kimber the White Lion? Because, wheels within wheels, Disney appears to have quite shamelessly ripped it off, at least in part with The Lion King. It's denied to the high heavens by the director, but as with all these things, it's a little more complicated, so naturally consider not the series, but the controversy itself as earmarked for a future episode. Like we're, we're we're doing a lot of these. This is going to be a deep a deep dive into Tezuka. not necessarily detailed, but you're going to learn a lot. At this point, we've uh, breezed our way up through Tezuka's history to the point where it's around 1951, and he's graduated medical school, a career choice made after he almost lost his arms to infection at a younger age. And imagine how that would have changed things. Uh, and it's a decision that also will come to affect all of his output on some level for years to come. But importantly. Following graduation, he created a one-shot called Ambassador Atom, which didn't really hit it off with readers, save for a key character, a robotic boy called Atom, who went to star in a little series called Mighty Atom, known over here as... God, I, I can't believe we're finally at a point where I can round off this episode. ASTRO BOY! Join me next time as we hit the big leagues for Tezuka, see him define the shoujo demographic all time explain his time in the nine-mythical Tokiwaso, and see him make his first tentative, doomed steps into animation. Also, a quick nod of appreciation to both uh, the website Tezuka in English, which is a fantastic resource for learning stuff about uh, his various works, and to Fred Van Lente and Ryan Dunlavy's comic book History of Comics, which helped provide me with a lot of extra information about Tezuka's early days, as well as a mountain of entertainment.
0: And that's that thank you to max for that excellent first part uh of his profile and um thank you to you listener you're wonderful and patient thank you to the patreons especially i'm not saying that those of you who are patreons are better listeners than the other listeners but you are um you know you are paying a little bit it's got to be worth something hasn't it if you liked uh, Max's contribution, please do tell him about it. If you've got any questions, uh, get in touch with him on uh, Twitter. He's, I think he's Maxie Barnard. I think he said it on that contribution. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, or comment on this post on wehaveissues.net or talk to us on the Facebook page, We Have Issues, or the Facebook group, The Other 10%, or uh, at Twitter, at Pod. And, um, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I'll speak to you next week. Bye bye.